everybody, welcome to this month's version of Metal Misconduct. As always, I am Brian Segel from Metal Blade Records. And joining us, as always, Sean Rourke from NHL.com. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great. Uh, summer vacation, sitting on the deck, the sun's out, you can't beat it, man. Yeah, that's. I guess ho- hockey is the right sport for, for somebody that likes to enjoy the, the summertime because it's pretty mellow for you, right? Yeah, you know, everybody thinks that, but it's really just the the end of July, like right right around now, and uh, uh, most of the month of August, everybody kind of checks out for those six weeks. But other than that, it's become a it's become a uh, what is that forty six week a year season now, which is unbelievable. But all sports have gone that way. It's amazing, you know. You talk to guys that cover football. When I first broke into the business, football was a relatively short beat, and and now it's year round. Um, you know, they never get any time off. So uh, for a long time, it was just baseball. Nobody wanted to do it because it was a ten month season. Um, but now it's uh, every sport's that way. It's it's social media and and twenty four seven news cycles. There's a uh, there's no true downtime. I don't think anymore. No, that's very true. And, for, and unfortunately for me, like this is the worst time of year for for us between all the summer touring and all the festivals and. Everything else, it's uh, pretty insane. And then I just spent the weekend at Comic Con, which was interesting. I know. I was following your tweets. It looked like a good time there. Yeah, it was a blast. Uh, it's uh, I was hanging out a lot with those Howard Stern dudes, which was always fun. So that was cool. And, and everywhere you go, there people are metalheads. I met so many actors and like the the guy from um, um, one of these. Oh, I'm going to forget the name of the show, but they're all these. Just everybody's a friggin' big metalhead. The guy who runs Hasbro Toys is a huge metalhead. I was talking to him, and they did a Kirk Hammett special guitar, uh, which was pretty cool for their Transformers um, brand. And it's pretty amazing. I think that, well, I I won't say who they're going to do next year, but it's another big metal celebrity. So I don't, I want to spill the beans, but uh, that's pretty cool. And then uh, I find out he's a massive metalhead. He was like, yeah, dude, a couple of years ago, I was in Boston. and I bought an old school Metal Blade t-shirt. I was like, oh, cool. Nice. I uh, I saw you were hanging out with one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite beer company uh, presidents or brewers or uh, Ballast Point out there right in uh, right in California. Yeah, see, I'm again completely beer ignorant when it comes to that sort of stuff. But I was hanging with with Richard Christie and Sal Governale from the Stern Show, and if, especially Richard. Richard, of oh, course, is Richard a, was in heaven. I bet. Oh yeah, well that's apparently that's how it happened. Is they hung out the night before Wednesday night, and then he invited it. He invited me. One of the reasons why I went, went in the first place was that Stern Show had a big um, uh, party there at Comic-Con. And I'm friends, obviously I'm really good friends with Sal and Richard, but I also know the other guys like John Hyde and Steve Brandano and J.D. Harmeyer and all those dudes. So they said, come to the party. So I went down and hung out at the party. And Richard the night before had hung out with these Ballast Point people and then went to the party and said, hey, we're going to go to my buddy's restaurant uh, afterwards. You want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we ended up going there. And it's a huge restaurant there, which was packed to the rafters. And like I said, I'm beer ignorant, so apparently this brand is pretty huge. And they get us a whole table in the back area, and the food was really good, too. We talked to the chef, but the same thing, guy running it and his wife, huge heavy metal fans. Guy's favorite band is Iron awesome. Maiden. Yeah, they, they, make, they, make some, uh, they make some really good beers out there. I did They're, have... Uh, oh, go ahead. What'd you have? I did have... A, the only thing I found that I can drink a little bit of... Because I like the taste, but it's just so rich. Are stouts? Stouts okay. I can do. They're good. I haven't I haven't had it, their stout yet, but they they do an IPA series, and it's uh, they're all named after fish, sculpin, and uh, big eye, and all these other ones. And 
they're fantastic. Um, I'm a big IPA guy, and they make some of the best IPAs out there. Like I said, I'm sure I'm sure Richard was in his glory with the way that he loves beer. Oh yeah, oh he was in heaven because he, well, that's how he reached out to them actually. I think via Twitter and said, "Hey, I'm going to be in San Diego. I'd love to meet somebody from there." And sure enough, the people running it are heavy metal fans, and they end up meeting and spend a couple days there with them, and they, they were really super nice, and that was a lot of fun. I saw on uh, I saw on Twitter. Did Richard play that weekend too? Yeah, Richard played. Uh, Kirk Hammett was there, as was Rob Trujillo. Kirk Hammett was doing a signing for. He's got a toy, a toy company, and he's doing his own toy line of Kirk Hammett inspired things. So he looks like a zombie or something. So he did a signing there, and then Trujillo and Kirk were both at the. There's a uh, Trujillo did a, a short film called Talica Parking Lot, which was kind of a. It's funny. I thought it was based on the original heavy metal parking lot, but Robert said, "No, I just I know of it, but I've never actually seen it." But their version was an animated version of the Metallica parking lot done by the Titmouse people, and Titmouse has done, among many other things, Metalocalypse. So they did this really cool. It's got to be five minutes short of. It's hard to describe. You have to see it. It's apparently it's going to be living on Metallica.com, so you can go check it out. It's called Metallica Parking Lot. So those guys were there. And then that night, Friday night, they did a, a, a party. Scion did a party, and they had Exodus play. And then after Exodus played, they did a jam thing. So it was Kirk and Robert. Uh, it was a little bit of Tom Hunting from Exodus on drums. Then Richard played four or five songs. Then Stephen Perkins from James Addiction played a few songs. And they also had Doug Pinnock from King's X sing a few things. Mark Osuedo from Death Angel sang a few things. It was just a big jam, fun, party thing. Uh, a lot of alcohol being drank and whatnot. So it was a blast. I was hanging out with Carrie. Carrie King was there, so I was hanging out with him and all the Stern Show guys. And Yeah, it was um, an interesting weekend, to say the least. That's awesome. Did they did they film the show or no? Oh, no, no. Uh, people were filming it on their iPhone, but it was a tiny little club, so I, there was nobody really filming it there. They did have a pretty good uh, audio recording of it, though, because they played it on the Stern Show this morning, actually. They played a couple of the things that Richard had done there, so it was pretty cool. Oh, did cool. they? Yeah. I'll, have to listen to the, I'll have to listen to the replay. Yeah, it was cool. I got to sit, on the, sit in. They did a live wrap-up show. Uh, well, I guess they did it all days, but I was there Friday and Saturday, so I got to be in the audience watching that, which was, which was interesting. Being a big, a big Stern fan, it's always interesting to see how those sort of things work so and see how my friends are working <laughs> or so they say they're working well, yeah, it sounds like a good weekend man yeah it was good got to meet a lot of interesting people got some interesting projects that uh, hopefully will come to fruition that i talked with about some people too involving metal Blade and some other stuff so yeah it was pretty good so yeah um, and uh, <clears throat> i saw i saw a lot of x uh x metal misconduct people this weekend myself well nice. not a lot i saw vaughn yeah, you saw Vaughn. Hi, nice. Well, I saw Vaughn on Thursday night. I went to the metal, uh, the metal night of this is hardcore festival at the Electric Factory in Philly. Ah, yes. And uh, it was uh, the big bands were uh, Ringworm, uh, Overcast, um, Unearth, and Killswitch. And I think there was another band in there, but I'm not sure about that. But those were like the four big, uh, the four headliners, so to speak. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen Ringworm. Obviously, I've seen Unearth before and seen Killswitch a couple of times. But uh, Vaughn was in to see Killswitch. 
um, and I ran into him in the bowels of the arena. It was a good show, man. It was uh, I had never been to one of those festivals before. They do a really nice job with it. That's a great lineup. Yeah, and it's a great venue. We had had our uh, when we did the outdoor game in Philly a couple of years ago. We had our New Year's Eve party there. It's like a sponsor party, and uh, you know all the sponsors come and the league personnel and everybody. And it's really nice. It's like your New Year's Eve party. Everybody gets dressed up, and um, they had Joan Jet play, and um, they <laughs> and she was she was not uh, she missed the. Uh, she missed New Year's by a couple minutes, and she didn't play like a lot of her hits. She was uh, she was supporting a new album, so she played a lot of stuff off of that. But the Electric Factory was really dressed up for the event because it was a, it was a really nice party. And and this week it was bared back down to you know basically it is, which is an old factory. And uh, they even got rid of the high stage. I don't know if you've ever been in there because it was a hardcore show. They put the stage right on the ground. It was maybe a foot off the ground, and it was just mayhem. People you know, stage diving, pitch invasion, the whole thing. It was uh, it was really kind of cool to see. Well, I've been there. I've been there. Well, that's weird. I wonder why they took the large stage out. Because that's what they do. They want to stay true to uh, to their hardcore roots, and all those stages are done on little bar stages. Mm. So they kind of they curtain that, and then they, they put the lower stage. Even Killswitch played on that lower stage. Um, so for a lot of these guys, it was kind of a return to roots. You could see they really... You know, in a way, they got into it because they all they all fashioned their sets to older stuff. You know, they played a lot of early stuff, and then uh, you know it was kind of like being back in the in the clubs and the house parties and all that. And and you know, in a lot of ways, they enjoyed it, but uh, their stagecraft also wasn't up to being used to being you know guys right in their face singing with them, running into their guitars. So it, there was a little bit of mayhem going on. Um, you know, they're they're pretty far removed from that, a lot of these bands. But uh, you could tell they kind of enjoyed going back to those roots a little bit. Interesting. Cool. Well, um, as you can tell, we're just kind of babbling on here about various things. We're supposed to have a couple of different guests. Uh, my good buddy Chris Jericho is going to do this today, but unfortunately he's got... I mean, not unfortunately. Fortunately for him, he's, he's super busy. And... Uh, he got a Fozzie record just come out, and he's running all over the place doing WWE. I, I believe his quote to me was, I'm, I have to do all this stuff tomorrow. My head's going to explode. So explode. So he apologized, but he's definitely going to do it here in the, in the very near future. So, uh, And then uh, we're also trying to get, at the last minute, our good friend Mike McKenna, who's now a member of the Arizona Coyotes. But we, it was super last minute, and uh, he didn't get the message until very late, because I want to get him on not only to talk hockey, but to talk IndyCar racing as well. So we'll uh, we'll have him on. He's an old friend of the show as well. I, th- I think if he does the next one, he will have the most appearances of anybody on the show, I do believe. So since we don't have a guest, we get to kind of banter a little bit and talk and stuff, like we have done before, obviously, especially when we're talking about hockey. But I figure since there's not a lot of hockey going on, uh, and we've done this show, I've, I've, this has been three years now, Sean, that we've been doing this thing? Yeah, it's uh, March of uh, 2011. I was just uh, I was just looking at the podcast page on iTunes. Uh, I was trying to put together a little uh, a little blog presence, um, and uh, so I had to go find the um, the, the actual uh, iTunes uh, listing. And, and the first one was Drew Stafford from the Buffalo Sabers in uh, 2011. That's right. So yeah, and for all of those of you listening to us, we're on three three different formats at the moment. We start out on hardradio.com the first Saturday of every month at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. Then Monday our good friends up in Canada Broken Neck Radio 
com. They air the show, and then right after that, it goes up on iTunes. So you won't get to hear the music that we get to play at the end of the show, unfortunately, on iTunes, but you get to hear all the cool interviews and everything, and we've done quite a, a, a wide variety of people now doing this thing. So it's been really a lot of fun. We've had everybody from tons of NHL guys. We've had Hall of Fame baseball players on. We've had re- wrestlers. We've had MMA guys. You know, you name it. Comedians. <laughs> You name it, we've had it on here. So it's a lot of fun. And breaking news, as we talked earlier, Mike McKenna is now, hooray, hooray, able to join us. So we welcome now, let me see if I can get my uh, my good intro done here. So Mike's, of course, been on the show, now officially now more than anybody else has, which we love. A good friend of the show. He's been goaltending for many, many years played in the St. Louis Blues organization, the Columbus Blue Jackets organization, currently a member of the Arizona Coyotes, our good friend Mike McKenna. Mike, are you there? Hey, guys. What's going on? Today? Glad to have you. Glad to be on. Thanks so much for coming on. So, anyway, um, tell us about your new gig, Arizona Coyotes now. Yeah, the newly rebranded Arizona Coyotes, um, being Phoenix previously. Uh, you know, it came to free agency and I'd had talks with Columbus and everything, but it looked like they were going in a different direction with some young guys next year in the American league and who they wanted for the number three and four guys. And so, um, that didn't look too promising. And, you know, first day of free agency, I, I had an offer from Arizona and, um, it was a good offer first and foremost, but secondly, it seemed like my best chance to play in the NHL again too. So, uh, I was really excited about it and I thought it was a, a layup and a no-brainer, and so I took it right away, and now I'm a Coyote and possibly, you know, be a Portland Pirate again for the second time in my career, too, in the American League, which is likely destination for the start of the season here, and we'll see what happens. I'm really excited about it. And and obviously, you're going to have a chance at camp to, to open some eyes, but if you end up in Portland, I mean, that's a, you've been there before. That's a good minor league town, no? Portland's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've I did a tour there my third year pro, which was 0708, and we had a fantastic time there. It's a great city. Uh, if you like food, it's one of the best ones you'll ever find, truly. Um, everything's really local there. Um, the fan base is, is really good. They kind of went through a hellish season last year where the team was in Lewiston, Maine, for a couple of reasons, and those are all in the past, thankfully, and the team is back in Portland where it belongs with more or less a brand-new arena. It's completely renovated. The seats, the suites, the locker rooms, all that stuff is all brand new, and I can't wait to get back there. So the fun thing for you is going to be if you get called up, how many flights is it going to take you to get to Phoenix or L.A. or wherever you got to play? I'm expecting a minimum of two connections every leg. Uh, it could be a long day on the, on the bird, but... I know everybody hears that and they think it's Arizona and Portland, Maine, but it, you know it's also true for... San Jose's got a team that's in Worcester, Mass, and the Kings have a team in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, it's well, just kind of the way it works with the American League. You know, things are regional, or they try to contain it within regions as much as the control costs. And uh, Well, maybe Sean can clue us in a little bit further, but I know that the HL's talking very, and I think it's actually pretty close to happening to have a West Coast division. Sean? Yeah, I mean, there's, right. there's and, some there's some definite thought to that just to kind of control those costs a little bit of, you know, having to ship guys back and forth and, and losing guys in transit for, for days at a time. Um, 
but uh, you know they have to figure out some of the travel issues that they're going to have and and an unbalanced uh, unbalanced division. So you know I think they're still going at that. I think Mike probably talked about that a little bit at the uh, Mike's heavily involved with the Players Association at the minor league level. I'm sure there were some discussions about that this summer, right? Yeah, for sure. That was the heaviest part of our talk, really, because um, we've had a fair amount of discussion on it in the past, but this year it's really kicked into high gear. And but just like you guys kind of alluded to, they're talking about putting anywhere from four to eight teams out on the West Coast, uh, obviously driven by the teams that are currently out there in the NHL. They'd like to have their development teams closer to home. The problem is that there's a lot of there's a lot of logistics involved to make that happen. Um you know, some of those teams already own their American Hockey League franchises, and so for them it would be really simple to do it. Um, for the other teams, though, that don't already own a franchise, things become tricky, and you've got to find a willing partner to purchase the team that's on the East Coast in the American League. That's going to be a private owner. They're going to want fair, fair market value for it, and so um, it's a it's a logistical logjam of the highest order, but I think we're all hoping that if the NHL teams want to make it happen, we, I mean, they're going to make it happen if they want to. It's kind of how it works. We're just hoping it's done properly, and we're hoping that it's under the American Hockey League heading and nothing goofy happens like them starting their own league, and um, that would create a really strange scenario in all the minor league hockey. So we're just hoping it's done right because, to be honest, I think we'd all like to go play in um, Vegas or San Diego or, or Ontario or any of those good cities out there that are already really successful with ECHL teams. Yeah, as a as a as a West Coast guy, you know, I've I've always been dreaming of this for a long time because we have there's a lot of great franchises here in the in the ECHL as you mentioned. I mean, Ontario, Stockton, Vegas, which was great. You know, San Diego used to be really good. There's there's Idaho, so many of them out here. Alaska even. So I've always thought that it would make so much more sense to have these teams be here, and they're drawing just as many, if not better, than some of the the. East Coast AHL teams, but it is a bit, especially now because those ECHL teams are established. So not only do you have to have your own AHL franchise, now you have to work out a deal with these ECHL buildings and who's ever in there now too to basically usurp those teams out. Yeah, there's like I said, there's a lot of things that go into it, and I think that I think the goal isn't to necessarily just drive all the ECHL teams out. I mean, I think that a few of those markets might get cannibalized by the American League, but the hope is that. Um, you know, some of them can remain, at least enough of them, to keep a Western division to, to still play against teams like it. Anchorage has a great franchise in the ECHL. And, um, you know, you look at all those Stockton, Boise, um, on down that West Coast, there's just a lot of places that work. So really we're just hoping that, like we say, if it's done well, it could be great for the game. It could help grow the game across the board because California has already become a hotspot for hockey in the last 10, 15 years. And, there's only it can only go up from there. We're hoping, so we'll see what happens. We just hope it's done well. So before we get in, I know Brian wants to talk a lot of car car racing, and and that's cool. But before we get into that, I know the other big thing that's on the agenda for the A this year is they're going to do three on three overtime, right? That's right. Yeah, that was just brought to us at the when we were in Hilton Head. Uh, myself and three other members of our of our player union were in there for it, and they brought it to us and. Um, we don't have to approve anything. We wish we had that uh, availability like the NHLPA has. Uh, we don't have that with the PHPA, which is our association, but they do actively take our input, which we greatly appreciate. And 
um, Wendell Young in Chicago with the Wolves, he was one of the guys who was really pushing for this to go to it. And, I mean, truthfully, I think it's going to be awesome. I mean, I, I know people look at it as a gimmick, but we already crossed that bridge by going to a shootout. And yeah. to me, it's less of a gimmick because a shootout doesn't happen in playoffs to determine who a potential winner is. Whereas I have played three on three in a real game before. It's happened only two or three times, but it has happened. Um, and so to me, it's slightly more realistic. I think you're going to find it's more exciting to end the game in overtime, I think, than it is in a shootout, even though it's, I mean, everybody likes a shootout just because of the excitement factor, but. If your home team wins in overtime, people are going bonkers when that place when that goal light goes on. You know, it, it has that it has that dramatic build up to it happening, and I think that's what we're just trying to do is to end more games in a, a more natural manner. And I think this will hopefully accomplish that. Well, I know the players hate the shootout. Uh, most fans that I talk to, including myself, love the shootout. But I've also been really lucky to see a couple of three on threes. In fact. I saw a three-on-three. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was either Kings and Ducks or somebody got two separate penalties uh, in overtime, and they had a three-on-three for about a minute and and ten seconds in this last NHL season. I have to admit, it was a blast to watch. You know, something that I'm really looking forward to with it, honestly, is that people don't have even thought about this or mentioned it in articles or anything that I've seen, but if you're playing three-on-three, and you're a goalie that can handle the puck, you're suddenly very important. And Mike Smith might rack up a dozen assists this year, just in overtime. I mean, if you make a save, you put the puck down, and you hit a guy at the blue line, I, it, I can't even – I haven't had availability to roam like this since they put the trapezoid in. So, um, And that's another thing. They're making the trapezoid area a little bit bigger for us to go roam around, which will help a little, but not a whole lot. I wish they'd just get rid of it, but um, it should be exciting. They're just going to wait until Brodeur retires to get rid of it. Then they'll get rid of it. Well, that may be this year, but is it, is it the same size in the A? Is it going to be in the NHL, the, the two feet that they're adding to it? Yeah, we're gonna we're just going to dovetail to what the NHL is doing, which is yeah. um, it's pretty it's pretty normal for us. Um, and the overtime deal wasn't something that the, the NHL was forcing down our throats at all. It was something that we actually were trying to kind of lead the way on and just try something different with and and give our fans an experience that hopefully they'll enjoy. And it's somewhat of a compromise for the players too, because I think we like the one-on-one skill aspect of the shootout. We just keep winning and losing in them because it doesn't, it still doesn't feel quite right. Uh, yeah. You know what? As opposed to an overtime game. I mean, you've won the game. It's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, the, the, it seems to me like when I go to the board of governors meetings and stuff like that, the NHL is still somewhat hesitant about the three-on-three, but there's so many issues with the shootout between the quality of the ice, how they're going to clean the ice before they do the shootout, all those things that go into it, the really long shootouts where, where, you know, you kind of, the interest ebbs and flows once you get past a couple of guys. So, you know, but it's such an old-school thing that, you know, three-on-three is so new-school. I saw the USHL, I think, did it last year full-time when they played overtime they did three on three and they came out here for a showcase out east they played in uh south now in your old form where the devils used to practice they redid that whole arena and uh it's a beautiful arena now they could probably have a, a junior a big junior team in there and they played three on three overtime 
And I, I thought it was great. There were no whistles. It was five minutes of because nobody's around each other. There's no stick fouls. There's no there's no offside because there's nobody to really drag offside. It, it, it's like roller hockey almost in a way. It's just constantly up and down, huge huge outlet passes and and let's go. So you almost have that shootout element because there's there's going to be five or six breakaways in a five minute three on three. Yeah, I mean that's. I like to call that green flag hockey. It's a racing term that I'm trying desperately to coin and get people get it to stick, and it hasn't worked. But <laughs> when the you know when there's when there's no whistles, it's the best. I mean, we had a couple games this year. We went five or six minutes without a whistle, and it's it's so exciting to be a part of it because the game doesn't get slowed down. It's constantly moving. I mean, that's what really drives us as athletes. We want to be playing the game. We don't want to have all these whistles and and slow things down like that. Yeah, no, there was a playoff game this year, that Kings-Chicago series, which both Brian saw all the games in L.A., and I was lucky to see all seven of those games. There was one of the games, and I think it was in Chicago, where they played nine or ten minutes with no whistles in the third period of a really close game, and it might have been the best ten-minute stretch of hockey I've ever seen. I mean, it was just... It was breathtaking. You know, you, you started looking down and going, when are they going to stop? Who's going to fall down first? Because both benches were short and and there were chances back and forth. And when the whistle blew, that was like the first time you could really kind of inhale and exhale at the same time and be like, all right, I'm back on my right rhythm here. Um, because for almost half the period, you weren't. You were, you were on the edge of your seat just, you know, wondering what's going to happen next. I'll give you another. There's another aspect to that, too, that players love is that the the third and fourth line guys really get to play a ton when that happens. And, um, you know, certainly for them, they certainly like that a lot better because if you get into a penalty match and if there's lots of whistles and everything, you get stuck with your first two lines playing an awful lot of it. I think we all like it better when all four lines are going and things are rolling like that. Okay, so I'm all done with my hockey now. I got my insight from Mike on some of the new rule changes and, and I, I, if Brian's ready to take over with uh, car racing, I'm ready to seed the floor. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not quite ready yet. I actually had a, a, a question from Mike because I'm a little bit. I mean, I know some of the inner workings of how hockey works and the politics and stuff of it. But I know often people ask me questions about, you know, because you know, how do you get from the AHL to the NHL and how does that that work? And especially out here in California, you guys get set up, set down. What are the the, the reasons for that? And I want to ask Mike that because you know you played. I thought you played extremely well when you got called up to Columbus this year. Uh, Honestly, quite better than their backup had been playing, and I know even just in this the 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 online world of you know hearing some rumors that people all wanted you to stay up there. And what was the reason that you? I mean, I kind of know a little bit, but maybe you can articulate better the reason why even playing so well in the NHL for you, you still had to go back down to the AHL. Uh, there's always a long and short answer to things. Um, the short answer is that I was on a two-way contract. Uh, and everybody ahead of me had a one-way contract. And so Curtis and uh, and Sergey both obviously had one-ways, and so there's a financial ramification to it. But really the, the, the long answer to it is that, you know, they bring those guys in at the beginning of the season on one-ways for a reason because it's usually based on a past workload. Someone believes in them. Um, those are the guys that they plan on having there as their two players. And short of somebody really falling flat on their face and getting put on waivers, um, you're not going to bring your guy that's on a two-way, especially a veteran guy like myself, up over somebody who's been established and been there for a while. 
Um, the case might be a little bit different in a situation where you've got a young prospect who's really earned earned it down low in the minors uh, and has earned his way up. And it's kind of similar to like, let's say what happened with, uh, with Martin Jones ended up in LA. Um, you know, they effectively were forced to trade Ben Scribbins that is because, you know, they're making room for him, uh, for Jones to come up and, you know, made Ben available for other teams because he was an attractive trade piece because people believe in him. So, in which they should too, by the way, I think that LA's done an absolutely fantastic job uh, developing goaltenders. You look at the list of guys on down. I mean, they've had Zatkoff, Jones, uh, Scrivens. Well, Scrivens was a trade, but they've also modified his game some too. And so, um, Bernier. They've done a great job with those guys. Bernier. And then, you know, they've got a kid that's playing in Manchester now, Barube, who's done a great job for him too. So, um, a lot of cred- credit there with Bill Ranford. And uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced his name correctly. I believe it's Kim Dalabal. But he's the goalie coach that was with Manchester, and I believe he just bumped up to, to L.A., but they've done a great job. Um, so that's that's kind of what goes into it with goaltending like that. And, um, you know, you can sit here and talk for hours about it, but realistically at this point in my career, uh, I think for me to stick in the NHL, it would take me playing 20 to 30 games and playing absolutely lights out and forcing somebody to keep me around because they thought I was that good. Um as of right now, I mean, my, you know, what you're labeled as is a number three guy, a depth player, a veteran guy uh, that can fill in and play some games. But until I got a really extended stretch and proved that I could carry the load, um, that would be the game changer rather than three or five games and just playing, you know, well during that time frame. And is it just the the fact that you kind of get into that role over the years that you kind of stay in that role? Because I've noticed that too. A lot of guys you know, who probably have the talent to play in the NHL, don't get the opportunity to play there. Because sometimes you got you just have to be in the right place at the right time to really, to really even get a break. I mean, I guess it's like that in any, in any business. But it, is that kind of right? I think you're, you're totally right. And, I mean, first off, you do have to be prepared, and you have to be playing at a high level to make it happen. But, um you know, you need to be ready to take advantage of things when they happen because you may only get that one opportunity. And on top of that, you need a bit of luck and you really need somebody to believe in you. And so there are a lot of guys, especially at the American League level, that are plenty good and can usually play in the NHL, but because they never got that right break at the right time, they're kind of in a similar role, similar role as me where they're just, you know, deemed a bust or they're deemed a veteran or whatever it may be. It's largely... You know, incorrect to a certain extent, but in the eyes of the right people, that's what you are. So, um, you know, you look at the you look at the way things go sometimes, and you look back and man, if this hadn't happened or if this hadn't happened, maybe things would be different. But you really just never know. I mean, I think for me, if if I'd have walked into Tampa Bay five seasons ago and lit the place on fire, that would have been my one chance to really prove that I could, you know, be somebody, so so to speak, in the NHL. Um, and, you know, whether it's because I was still somewhat young and in my fourth year pro or whether it was because we were playing with a team that was, you know, decimated by injury and, and trades and, um, quite frankly, in-up management and other things like that, it was it was just not a scenario that I thrived in when I needed to. And so that's kind of, I would imagine, at least this is all just guessing, but that's probably what's defined the rest of my career since then. 
And it really, I mean, a lot of times it is a crapshoot because you look not even at the goalie position. You look at a lot of guys that are in the in the AHL that are bona fide scorers that never get that chance when they come to the NHL. You know, guys like Jeff Taffy or you know whichever guy you want to pick out, and they're always like, "Oh, well, his skills don't transfer to the NHL." But when they bring him up, they don't put him on the line that he can thrive on. They put him on the third or fourth line and say, well, you need to do something with your minutes. Just like you need to do something with the three starts you get. You know, if you pitch three shutouts, maybe, you know, you get to stick around a little longer. Like, there's more to it than the absolute skill set. A lot of those so-called 4A guys are are actually NHLers, and they've just never been put in their right roles. Yeah, you nailed, nailed it on the head. Well, it's one time in my life I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> Make a note of that, Sean. Please, please do. Right. It, it yeah. will go across social media later today that I that somebody actually in the hockey world said I was right about something. <laughs> no, you're right. I agree with you. Yeah. But, I mean, you can look at some some guys like that who, I mean, I'll give a couple of good examples. I think, to their credit, I think the Islanders have given a lot of guys chances that haven't had it before. Um, and it's turned into good careers. I mean, P.A. Parento is one I can think of right off the top of my head. Um, Keith Coyne was a guy who did really well for them and at least got some, they rewarded him with some minutes. Um, well, a couple even, of goaltenders even, that have gone through there. Matt, Matt Molson, exactly. I mean, he was a guy who was just kind of, and so these are guys that are perfect examples of guys who can play the game, 100%, but they need the right scenario and they need a team to give them a chance and for an extended period. And like you say, if you dump a guy on the fourth line, the first-line player in the American League, I mean, my good buddy T.J. Hendrick, who he's a fabulous player. He's one of the best power play guys I've ever played with, but he's hardly gotten a stick in the NHL because he's just, for whatever reason, when he's been up, they've never given him that chance or if they have it didn't translate in the four games that he had to showcase it and you know he's kind of been admired in the same type of role that I have which I mean there's nothing wrong with it by, by all means like we're we're very grateful and lucky to play the game that we do for for a living and make a good living at it there's no shame in that but we'd be lying if we all didn't say we all wanted to play in the NHL you know <laughs> well it's similar to I mean I liken it a lot to what happens in music and even in, in films with acting it's just really the right place at the right time and yet like you said you have to have your A game on when you get the opportunity and you, sometimes it just doesn't it doesn't work out and once you have that opportunity if you miss it because all of these things sports and, and music and entertainment I mean it's all entertainment really when you look at it but the oper- there's so many talented people there and you only get so many opportunities to really make that break happen and if you miss it for whatever reason it just that's just the way it is and unfortunately but I mean, that- so now we can switch gears a little bit demos yeah, yeah exactly oh exactly I mean- totally I mean, there's yeah. great bands out and there. Brian, that... I... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I say, Brian, I bet you get demos from guys sometimes that you're just thinking, man, if this, if they could just get it together, they'd be incredible. We've got great musicians, but it just doesn't work right now. And you're just thinking, like, down the road or something. I bet you get that all the time, kind of the same way as we do in hockey, where it's just you need things to click at the right time or the right album or the right song, and finally you kind of get it. I bet that's... Maybe that's similar for you. Oh, sure, totally. I mean, I've seen bands, even to go beyond that, I've seen bands that are phenomenal live bands. They just, for whatever reason, never had it on on tape. 
to make it really work. A, a great example of that is a band like Armored Saint, who I always thought should have been one of the biggest metal bands. I mean, they headlined over Metallica a lot in the early days when Metallica was getting pretty big, but they were phenomenal live, and they just never really got that intensity on a record until it was really kind of too late after they'd already put out three records on a major label. And that I've seen that happen with several other bands where you don't capture what the band really is and the essence of what they are on a record wrong producer wrong management whatever it is and they never get to the to the level they gotta get so i mean it's very very similar for sure and the other thing is it's a lot of its styles like you know there there might be a band that's really great but isn't commercially stylistic just like there's players that are really good but they don't fit into the system of wherever they are you know if it's a if it's a defense first team you know if you're playing for the devils and you're a great scorer you know it's going to be a lot harder to break in because they're going to want you to be defensively adept whereas another team would be like i don't care we need scores we'll take all this defensive liability so a huge part of it i think is just style and and what is accepted at that very moment in both in music and hockey and whatever it is you know, sometimes there's great performances, but they don't fit into what people are going to consume at that at that particular time. Absolutely. So one reason why we love having Mike on our podcast here is because not only is he a great hockey player, as we all know, and as you can tell, a very intelligent and well-thought-out guy, but he's also a very big metalhead, too. And on top of all of that... He's also a very huge race fan, which as I am as well. So we get to talk some IndyCar with Mike a little bit too. So what are your thoughts so far how the season's going in IndyCar this year, Mike? I think the competition is as close as I've ever seen it. I mean, we've had, I think there's been eight or nine different winners so far, maybe even more than that. Um, and you haven't seen the complete domination from the Ganassi team, which almost always happens. I mean, one of their guys or two of their guys is always in the top five, and they've got four cars this year, and nobody's in the top of the points or won a race. And so it's been a season of toss-ups, but um, I, I really won a race again because he was so good in change car for a bunch of years, and um, that kind of divided during the split. See him? It's, I mean, just an amazing Indy 500 this year. Absolutely incredible finish to it. Um, I mean, it, it's been great competition and, um, sometimes the street courses get a little mucked up and they're kind of ugly races, but that's half the fun of those things is all the competition and the banging that goes on at them. And, um, I think it'll be a little bit of a nice break at mid Ohio next week. because It's a real road course where, you know, you finally get to see you guys on the legs a little bit rather than making I hope the weather is good, too, because that's another problem. Like Toronto, Houston, some of the last few races, the weather has been all messed up, which has kind of made the races shorter, and they've had to do a couple things. And it also, I think what it does even worse than that is really messes up the TV audience, too. Because, for example, I was not around because uh, the summer's so busy for me. I had to tape both Houston and Toronto, and I ended up missing a lot of it because they had delayed it so much because of all the weather. So hopefully the weather up there in middle Ohio yeah. will be a little bit better too. Yeah. And you know, the thing that goes along with that too, is that it's, I mean, they used to race in the rain, no matter what on road and street courses, it didn't matter if it was a downpour and that's kind of changed uh, in the last several years. And I, I know part of it's attributed to the, to the package that they have, like the dirt, I guess the wet tires aren't working very well. They're make, creating all this mist and stuff. And the surface in Toronto wasn't great, but, 
from him. In any case, even if they... Oh, we lost you. ...that they should be all right. Oh, we lost you for a second there. Sorry. Ah, there you you know what? I'm not going to give a... Uh, I might tell Sprint that they got to get me on the line here to get a sponsorship, because otherwise I'm going to give them the heave-ho. I've got a terrible connection, so... Hey, yeah, I... <laughs> I, yeah, Sprint's not the best one for sure. You're, there, it's not a good commercial for them. Anyway, we got you now. Good. I'm glad to be back. So, well, hopefully you got a little bit of the racing. It's been a great year in IndyCar. F1's been been dominated by Mercedes, but it's still been a pretty good season. Their last race in Hungary was really good too. So, well, I was gonna. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun this year as a race fan. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that because it, it's really interesting for me. Like, I, I'm a. I mean, I know pretty. I know pretty intimately the IndyCar thing and how it all works and the teams and all that stuff. I'm, I follow F1, but I'm not a huge. I mean, I follow it and I know who the drivers are, but I don't know the inner workings of it. But I find it fascinating that you know Lewis Hamilton, who's a phenomenal driver, and he was he was before with uh, with Ferrari, right? Uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton was with McLaren. For McLaren, you. sorry, McLaren. McLaren. Was another another powerhouse, right? But he Ferrari, so, McLaren was the yes, big dog. So he right. left McLaren, and everybody thought, oh, he's going to a, he's going to this other team, and they're not going to be as good. And he's really, you know, he's got everything he could want with McLaren. He's one of the number one drivers, and it's just not going to work. And meanwhile, he's made the change, and he's probably a better driver. He's doing better than he ever has. How much of that is on the driver, and how much of it is really on the team? Well, F1 is, you know, F1 still a constructor series where they make their own cars, the teams do. And so you've got 11 teams, each team has two entries into the series, and they produce their own car. Um, and part of that is that somebody always builds a better ma- mousetrap than the other team every year. And right now it's been Mercedes that's really been the strongest of those. And thing about F- or IndyCar that makes it so competitive is that they're all essentially driving the same chassis because it's made uh, in one place. It's basically a spec, meaning they're all the same. And so your only difference is more or less the setup that the engineer puts on it and the amount of work the driver puts in. And so Hamilton's just in a sweet spot right now, and his teammate's been really good too, though, Rosberg. So clearly he made a good choice to go to Mercedes because McLaren's been, in, they've been struggling since he left. Yeah, amazing. That's, so, that's, that's why I wonder how much of it is on the driver and how much of it isn't, because I know it's a little bit of a different setup with F1. Yeah, no, I was going to ask Sorry. I was going to ask as a novice, like, where, where's that difference? You know, you said they build their own cars and somebody builds a better mousetrap. Is it, is it in the aerodynamics? Is it in the engine? Where is Where are those advances usually made? That's a good question, too, because they're – they do run different engines, but the engine suppliers, there's only maybe four of them, I guess, throughout the series. Renault, Ferrari, um, let's see, a couple other ones. And so um, basically what you're seeing is mostly gained in aerodynamics. Um, some of it is gained in what they call like mechanical grip, but it's mostly in the car more so than the engine. But this year the engine's really come into play because it's maybe built a and it really paid off for him. And so that's the reason why people that are within engineering love F1 so much because there's a lot that goes into it. But then again, like a driver can make such a difference in who they build the car around. And, um, you know, if Hamilton leaves McLaren and McLaren's not doing as well since he left, wouldn't that indicate that a lot of it was the driver too? Absolutely. So, kind of a two-way street. 
great. Absolutely. Well, I hope my uh, my buddy Will Power, who's also a drummer, uh, wins in IndyCar this year for for once. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, he's battling his teammate, uh, so you never know. But cool. Well, so we also we got to wrap it up here pretty quick. But we thank Mike so much for coming on. So what have you been listening to metal wise lately, Mike? All right. Well, I just uh, I just got the new Goat Goat Whore album, so I'm I'm rolling on the Metal Blade records right now. Actually, good, good, good uh, answer. I good answer. Theirs. Yeah, no, their their new album's awesome. Is the last what six of theirs have been basically all of them. So um, theirs is really good. The new Misery Index CD, really like it. Um, I've listened to those guys for a while, and they and they don't put out a ton of stuff, but really good. Uh, the new King of Asgard, great stuff again. Nice. Um, and it's kind of cool because I've got a buddy of mine who really got into Amanda Mars in the last year, ever since I talk, took him to see him play live, and uh, and so he's kind of been trying to find all like the Viking type kind of black and slash stuff like that that Amon plays and he's loving King of Asgard right now too because I think they're a little bit similar like they're not they're not clones by any stretch but you can kind of hear some similarities there yep yep um so what else the new ah, new downs pretty good new crowbar insomniums are really really good arch enemy uh with their new singer I actually like their their new album a lot they kind of gotten stale on me but they're um, the new album's pretty good again. So, yeah, oh, New Mastodon, too. New Mastodon's awesome. And they're turning into a rock band, which is just the strangest thing considering what their first album sounded like, but I still love it. It's really good. So, yeah, a lot of new stuff in my in my CD player right now in the car, and I know that there's a couple more coming out throughout the rest of the summer here, so I'm really excited. And there's a lot of good I think most of the bands are doing a really good job at, at continuing to get better and better and that certainly is helping the, the metal scene because it seems like everybody really it's it's rare in the last couple of years where somebody's put out a new record where it's, people are like ah it's not as good as the last one yeah I mean you talk about being excited about something I haven't been let down by a CD that I bought which is great because I usually I mean you get the 20 second clips and the occasional song here and there and I still judge things over the course of the whole album. I don't just judge them on one song. And I know I consume music differently than a lot of the world does at this point, but I think I consume it like a lot of metalheads do. Because if you walk into any store, if you walk into Best Buy, what do they have the most of? They get the pop records and then they have the metal records because we're loyal consumers. I mean, there's no doubt about it that we're probably some of the only ones that are still buying CDs in some cases, I think. And Brian, you can probably attest to that. That is exactly 100% true. Absolutely. Yeah. So, by the way, Brian, going all the way back to before when Mike came, when I was talking about this is hardcore, and I can't believe I forgot this. The other band that was on that bill on Thursday was Crowbar, and it was the first time I had seen them. And what a fantastic show they put on! It was unfortunate; it was only a thirty-five minute set, but fantastic. Yeah, they're great. They're great guys. That's a that's a great band too. So, all right, well, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Thanks again so much for Mike for coming and talking to us about hockey and metal and IndyCar. We always love having you on. So, thanks again, and best of luck this year in Arizona and Portland. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can't believe it. Fourth time on the show. What a deal! You've, you've broken. <laughs> yeah, you've... no, fantastic. Always good to have you. Good luck with goalie camp this week too. Yeah, thanks. We're lucky here. We got uh, we got some really good kids in St. Louis up in college. And so you could you could follow Mike on Twitter. Yeah, we, What's your Twitter handle again, Mike? Yeah, follow me on Twitter at Mike McKenna fifty six. And are you uh, in- if you go to Facebook, I've also got 
I've also got Mike McKenna 56 on Facebook. I try to keep him updated and the same on Instagram. All right, good. All the same. Follow him on all of those things. If you follow him, you'll notice he's a super smart guy and a really great player. And we love having him on. So thanks again, guys. And uh, we'll see you guys next month.